This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I am deeply honored to have my very special guest, Dr. Robert Thurman, with me today. Dr. Thurman or Bob, if I'm maybe so formal. Absolutely, please. Uh, thank you for taking the time to be with me today. It's, it's a sincere well, honor. being with me. I appreciate it. Sure. So what I wanted to do just very briefly before we discuss this incredible okay. new book that you worked on is share your bio for listeners to give a little background as to who you are. And then we're going to jump into talking about this book. So recognized worldwide as an authority on religion, spirituality, Asian history, philosophy, Tibetan Buddhism, and his holiness, the Dalai Lama, Robert A. F. Thurman is an eloquent advocate of the relevance of Eastern ideas to our daily lives. In doing so, he has become a leading voice of the value of reason peace, and compassion. He was named in 1997 one of Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential Americans and has been profiled by the New York Times Magazine and People Magazine. As part of his long-term commitment to the Tibetan cause and at the request of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Thurman co-founded the Tibet House U.S. in 1987 with Richard Gere and Philip Glass. Since then, Uma Thurman Melissa Matheson Ford, Natalie Merchant, Leila Hadley, uh, Luce, and others have joined the board. Tibet House U.S. is a nonprofit organization in New York City dedicated to the preservation and renaissance of Tibetan civilization. It maintains a lively museum and cultural center and offers programs in all aspects of the Tibetan arts and sciences. I recently founded the Menla Mountain Retreat Center in the Casco Mountains to advance the healing arts and wisdom of Tibetan and Asian medicine traditions and offer their resources to the growing demand for alternative and complementary health practices. And coming from my own line of work, uh, Bob, that is so important. I, uh, aside from being a writer and speaker as well, uh, right. In Hartford, I work with a nonprofit where we go into jails and psychiatric hospitals oh, and oh. Uh, all sorts of places where people don't have access to these alternative healing and alternative, quote unquote, but these other kinds of healing modalities, yeah. breath work, yoga, qigong, um, right. tai chi. So uh, I, I deeply uh, honor you for and, and the house for doing really that. Great work. Thank you. But enough about me and that. Let's talk about <laughs> Man of Peace. This yeah. is a book um, 
I, it was on my radar, and I can't even begin to tell you how excited I was when uh, Beth, um, who, who's doing publicity for this, reached out to me and said, hey, would love to send you a copy. Um, and I responded basically, yeah, twist my arm. <laughs> like I, this, oh, uh, great. It's, you know, I know podcasts or anyone listening can't see, but... Yeah, it was the Dalai Lama meeting Gandhi. Yeah, uh, just... Generally, yes. And, of course, the terrible things that went on in Tibet. So... It's uh, it not just, a, you know, hearts and flowers, the Dalai Lama. It's the Dalai Lama presenting his heart and offering flowers in response to all kind of violence and terrible stuff. Yes. So it's really, really amazing. We're sorry, you know. I mean, above and beyond amazing, you know, what he has been through, the fact that he made it and is here and is still such a powerful uh, force in the world, um, which is amazing. Yeah. I, a side note, I just finished his book with Desmond Tutu, which was a beautiful read as well. And and how wonderful, you know, to see these two different religions coming together and really yeah. celebrating one another in the spirit of kindness and compassion and unity. Beautiful. But coming yeah. back to Man of Peace. Yeah. I, I want to start off with why, why did you feel that you needed to write this book, you know, The Dahlia's Life in a graphic novel? Um, right. And aside from that, I know that you've been longtime friends with the Dalai Lama, but if you could talk a little bit about that as well, how long you've known sure. him and how that came to be and your relationship sure. with him. Yeah, well, uh, the, 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 the young Bob Thurman and the young Dalai Lama met when, we, when he was... Uh, 20, uh, I was, he was 29, I was 23. Mm. And thanks to the kindness of my original uh, teacher in Buddhism, uh, the Mongolian Lama Geshe Wangyal, uh, who took me to introduce him in Tibet because I wanted to be in, in Tibetan refugee community because I wanted to be a monk. Yeah. And he, of course, that was my interest. You know, I thought that when he said maybe Dalai Lama would make me a monk, he, he did, didn't advise me to be a monk. Knew I was sincerely wanting to be, but he, he wanted me to. Uh, he, he said he had a kind of prophetic view of the future, and he knew that I would maybe it was not my karma to be a monk in this life actually, mm. for for a long time. But actually, I don't regret that I did it, although in Tibetan system. So I was the first person the Dalai Lama ordained as a monk, right? And I disappointed him unfortunately, and after a few years, I resigned and mm. reverted to lay status. And that was very disappointing to him, but we remained really good friends. Right. And uh, but and I don't regret it because having been that, I learned something about the institution to truly respect it. Yeah. I totally accept my own failings and my flaws and my inability to remain as a monk. Yeah. But I really, really, and I still really appreciate. In fact, eventually the Dalai Lama used to laugh and look at me and would say, "You are the most enthusiastic about monasticism ex-monk that I know." <laughs> And in the sense that years later, I came as a sort of study of history and sociology to the realization that monasticism, although Buddhist is different really than Christian one in some respects, but sure. in some respects it resembles, it's similar. But that is the major institutional social antidote to militarism in a society that has ever arisen. Mm -hmm. In other words, it gives you a kind of boot camp for nonviolent practitioners, nonviolent heroes, let's say, to counteract the influence of boot camp violent heroes, you know, right. who right. frighten everybody and who control everything in societies that don't have some sort of an institutional thing. In those other societies where 
you don't have any form of monasticism, sort of legal or, or official way to drop out, you could say. Yeah. The only thing that stands against the, the state, the militarized state, is the family. And the families are not strong enough to withstand the state, whereas our, our cadres of monks who have no family, formally speaking, uh, you know, and therefore are willing to risk their lives like the soldiers do, but they're doing it for nonviolence and love is a very important institution to have in a society. And Buddha invented it, and the Christians were the other major practitioners of it in history. Right. Much later, you have a few Hindu monks, you have Taoist monks, but uh, that's much later. The real originators were Buddhism and Christianity, with Buddha being the one who invented that system, yeah. where you could actually drop out and join something like you join the army, but this is an army of nonviolent meditation practitioners and, right. and learning practitioners who are trying to reach a higher state where they would not be lose their temper, they would not kill another being, and so on. Yeah. And it's a, a very marvelous institution. So I'm glad that I tasted it and learned about it so that eventually I could wax enthusiastic. Unfortunately, a lot of our Buddhist Dharma Center leaders are ex-monks, and they kind of want to rationalize their being an ex-monk, some of them, and say that we don't need that here in America, we're all going to be enlightened in families, you know. Mm. Well, that's all very well, but, you know, we still do have a million soldiers and the Pentagon and a huge amount of the federal budget spent on that. And so it's going to take something stronger than a few Dharma centers and a few nice people in families to actually shift American society to a less violent one. You know, it's going to right. take a big effort. So, you know, the Catholics, you know, are now no longer persecuted here as they were at one time by the Protestants. Uh, but they kind of, because of the nature of the society, you know, no free lunch in America sort of thing, the... the um, the Catholic monasticism has never spread very effectively in America, you know. But right. maybe, it will. maybe it will with some alliance with Buddhism in the future. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm thinking of, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of people like Matthew Fox and Andrew Harvey yes. and a young friend of mine, Adam Bucko, um, you know, these sacred activists who, you know, come from the Catholic tradition and, uh, and are really sacred activists, you know. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It so. It is happening, so to, but I understand what you're saying. people. Yeah. So to, have, to begin to have a sort of critical mass, a body of people who can sort of stand, create a vibe right. in a society that goes along against, that, that sort of counteracts or absorbs the vibe of the shooters, you know. Right, of course. Uh, it takes, like, institutions that will shelter them and make it possible for maybe less exceptional people to... But still, of course, everybody's exceptional in a way sure. if they bring it out. And so they will then develop into kind of a, a large group. Yeah. And uh, uh, sh they should be able to do that. Anyway, so so that's my thing. So then the Dalai Lama and I stayed good friends. And he made he actually loved my children and my wife. I think eventually he likes them more than me. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, you know, I was able to work with him and receive his teaching. When I first met him, he was young. And he was still very much under the tutelage of his teachers. And he assigned me to study with his teachers yeah. also. And so we were kind of fellow students, you know, rather than he was my big guru at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and then, um, but later, after he reached around 40s, you know, mid-30s, about 10 years later, uh, he really emerged like a 
spiritual, you know, heavyweight, and um, and I really learned a great deal from him, and I'm deeply grateful to him, and I consider him my guru now. But the other great thing about him as a person is he's mentally uh, and very flexible, which Buddhist Buddhist enlightenment is supposed to make you yeah. rather than rigid. Like I'm a great guru, right? Uh, and therefore, he can be perfectly ordinary, like normal and friendly, and you know, you can kind of have fun. You don't have to always be on attention. Yeah. I mean, like you're in front of the guru or something. You know? Right, right, right. And, uh, sometimes in some settings when he gives teachings, yes, you are. But when you're just hanging out or helping him with something or doing some project together, then he's he's very, very human and wonderful. You know? That's really what I really love about him. Yeah. Like when he goes to the White House or some such dignified place, he always greets the cook and the butler and the security guy and the maid or whatever, the same as the big shot. You know? Of course, in yeah. Film. He's always like that. Yeah. First met the first bush. It was a famous scene when he met the first bush. And we have this in the book. Um, He was it was a sort of backdoor meeting because the first bush was very close with China. You know, and he was nervous about inviting. But he did due to internal family pressure of other members of the Bush family who knew that Alaman liked him. And so then he but then when he left. The dog, Millie, you may be too young to remember, but there was a famous bush dog called Millie. And the dog left with him out this sort of service <laughs> elevator and was running across the lawn of the White House with the Dalai Lama's party. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. I were chasing the dog. So the dog liked him a lot. You know? Yeah. He, he liked the dog and he, he liked the family, you know, whatever, you know. But and I th- we always thought that was a very funny incident. So why we wrote the book? Because... Now, His Holiness has several autobiographies. Yeah. And so other people have written different kinds of things about him. And I've written about him in the past, too. Sure. But I realized a couple of years ago that, um, you know, he never told his own story, highlighting himself as the hero in the story. Hmm. You know, he just gave kind of his reminiscences of he met Mao and he did this and he did that. Yeah. But he, you know, and he downplayed his effectiveness and his abilities and things, although someone could suss it out if they looked at it. But in other words, he didn't really make himself the hero because he's not that kind of person. You know, right. he's a, he, he reverts to his identity as simple Buddhist monk. He's not he's not saddled with the disease that in Buddhism is generally considered in Zen and in all traditions of Buddhism. It's the disease of thinking you're enlightened. Hmm. It's a kind of disease because if you do that, then you have to rationalize everything you do as something fantastic and awesome, <laughs> and you become very pompous and paralyzed. Actually, yeah, sure. Naturally, unless you were a Buddha, and in which case you wouldn't bother to have to emphasize it. Uh, you know, you you get it's kind of disease. In Zen, they call it being trapped in the demon ghost cave. Mm of being stuck of, oh, I'm enlightened, I know emptiness, or I know the absolute, or something like that, you know, then you get to be an absolute pain. <laughs> it's what happened. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so so he doesn't do that, you know. And so this in this version of it, and that's why we call it a graphic novel, yeah. rather than a graphic bio, although it is a bio, and the, the scenes are all drawn from his own autobiographies or other evidence or my own experience with him, actually. Sure. And uh, so it's, a, it's very authentic, and it is a biography, but we call it a novel because in it we show him, his agency, so to speak, acting in relation to all these difficulties. And, of course, the key and the central action of his whole life 
is to be a nonviolent hero, like Gandhi was, like right. Martin Luther King, right. where he keeps preaching a response of love, patience, tolerance, maybe humorous, critical debate over a disagreement and dialogue, but not aggression and hostility, you know, yeah. and anger and hatred. And he never called for that. And the Tibetans did fight back to some extent, uh, but he was against that. And he said, don't do that because you can't win and it just makes it worse. And you just right. have to you have to do an inner fight over your inner anger and hostility and so on and egotism. And that's going to be your victory in the long run. I mean, he's always given that teaching. Yeah. And, um, and uh, then people say about him, the other motive I had, I think, was people tend to say about him, oh, I love Dalai Lama. He's so nice and I love to hear him talk and it's inspiring. But politically, he doesn't know, you know, really, you better have a guerrilla war. You better fight. You better detect the Chinese. You know, that's what you have to do in life. You know, you, that's unrealistic otherwise. You know, they, right. people say that. And, and to which I answer, Dalai Lama is more gentle than me in his answer, but I answer how are they doing in the Middle East and in Afghanistan using violence about settling things? Not really a good job. No. Even say building a highly defended wall backed up with nuclear weapons is not actually a safe situation, you know, right. with enemies, millions and billions of them who hate you. Yeah. So, so nobody has won lately any kind of war right. since, since 1945. Really, no. nobody won one. And they are not going to actually. It's it's a good. It's there's a lot of good theory, not just Buddhist theory. There's good sociological and historical theory that weapons are too powerful for anybody to win wars anymore. Yeah. And so the Dalai Lama's, although it's been very slow and long, and even today, it looks like there's hardly any progress or even no progress. The genocide is kind of looks like it's still in full swing of the Chinese by the Chinese of the Tibetans, and yet. He's confident it will work out because one side has not significantly contributed to the violent confrontation. Mm. So they have absorbed the blows and absorbed and absorbed. So eventually when you are giving blows and the other side absorbs, you, your arm gets tired. Yeah. And you decide maybe there's another. And if they, of course, and they don't disappear and they're not going to disappear. You know, six million Tibetans. A lot of them have been disappeared, but they, they, there's always more of them. Yeah. And so, just like here in America, the the Euro Americans, uh, you know, have sitting on this genocide of the first Americans, the native people. We haven't really acknowledged it. We haven't really made compensation for it universally. It's here and there we have, and this has haunts us and it spoils our lives. You know, it relates sure. to a lack of. A, and it's been many hundreds of years, but they will, it's not over. They're still no. there. And they're, they're, they were alerting us that we're polluting things too badly and standing rock, you know, and so on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tibet is another only 60-year-long standing rock standing in front of the Chinese as they are polluting their own environment horribly. Right. And anywhere they can spread to, they, they tend to pollute it. Being confused about industrial, you know, uh, wealth as being sort of the purpose of life, having been confused by the ideology of materialism, unfortunately. You know, as you're speaking about Tibet, um, yes. I can't help but wonder what your thoughts are on why, if Tibet's fate is relevant to America, especially now. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, well, the thing is, you see, the, the Dalai Lama and I myself, we don't really blame the Chinese people for their for their government's genocidal activities and policies sure. in Tibet. And the soldiers who executed it would have been executed themselves if they hadn't. 
So we don't actually blame them. What actually is going on is an imbalance in the planet having to do with industrialization of militarism on the one hand and commercialism or consumerism on the other hand. And on the, the militarism one has led to the invention of these weapons that could obliterate all of us sure. and are, are still very dangerously present and proliferating. Everybody's all having a spaz about North Korea. Yeah. But there's, you know, Pakistan has tons of them and threatens India all the time. India has its defense ones. I mean, there's a lot of them around. And uh, and so um, uh, so that's the militarism side. And then the consumerism side, we're now seeing the result is the global warming of the overproduction of everything, every kind of human comfort, you know, air conditioning, massive air, you know, whatever. We need more power for all of this stuff, you know. So industrializing consumerism is equally destructive, which is a very Buddhist, has a very close to Buddhist analysis that hatred and greed, hatred and lust are the two, uh, this next two major poisons yeah. Beyond the key poison, which is a misunderstanding of the nature of reality and therefore a misconceived meaning of life and just living for money, for example. And uh, so China never invaded Tibet really in the past ever. And they always looked to Tibetans as sort of either before Buddhism as kind of shamans. They, actually, they were military enemies for a while before Buddhism because the Tibetans were big warriors. But uh, before that. But uh, they looked at them as the source of their rivers, you know, the headwaters of their rivers coming sure. off the Himalaya. They projected a Kunlun, which is sort of connected to the plateau, uh, you know, Himalayan huge giant Tibetan plateau. They saw that as the place of heaven where the mortals, you know, and their gods, you know, the great goddess, etc. Mm. The Chinese people were heaven, you know, and so they never messed with it. But then they got all distorted originally by Maoism, Marxism. I guess Guomintang by by capitalistic militarism, and then the communists dominated the country, and then life is about money, and we have to have power, and we have to expand our empire, because, and liberate everybody. Supposedly he liberate them, <laughs> country, and uh, so they invaded Tibet, and that was really the first time in 1950 that they invaded it, mm. and um, so, but then luckily. China has run up against the walls that we've all run up against, which is that our militarism no longer works because we will obliterate everything if we escalate any kind of war seriously. Yeah. And our consumerism no longer works unless, you know, we can put our head in the sand like Trump or like the Koch brothers and pretend there is no global warming. Right. Everybody knows there is. And that's going to make all life. It's going to make the oceans where I was just listening to a, a, a retired admiral who did wrote a great book called Sea Power about how the oceans provide something like 80% of our oxygen. Mm -hmm. And when they acidify and they get over overwarmed, they'll stop doing that. And that's it. I had not realized that. I knew about the drying out of the temperate zone areas, you know, yeah. where that's going to happen by the heat rising. But I didn't know that the oceans, by acidifying, destroy all the coral, they destroy all the plankton, and then the oxygen that is mostly made in the, over the water surface, not over the by trees on the land. Yeah. A lot, much larger percentage from the water. I didn't know that. Oh, nor did so, I. Wow. So we're not going to have oxygen. You know, I mean, it's it's just hmm. asinine that whole thing. So China has run into that so quickly because the industrial people of the so-called developed countries dumped all their polluting industries into China, 
to be able to have cheap labor and no pollute, no environmental controls. You know, they did that. But this then and the Chinese then made a lot of money out of that. But the Chinese government did and some few billionaires, you know, and millionaires. But the country completely got polluted by like sort of concentrating all the polluting activities of every love canal producing corporation on the planet. Yeah. And they so they they now know that. So they may have they are they are going to realize that certainly in the within this period, you know, the people Xi Jinping was talking about not leaving the Paris Accord. Of course, he was teasing Trump maybe a little bit at, at Davos, but, you know, the president of China. But also the Chinese have realized that this doesn't work, this industrial thing. And then they can go back to their wonderful connection to nature they had through Taoism and Confucianism, right. their wonderful Buddhism, where they had seven, eight hundred million people who are Buddhists, and they're going to be they're going to be a positive force when they relax this sort of ideological materialism, you know, that they've enforced on their people, you know, which yeah. in a way is only nominal. The Communist Party is really just a dictatorship yeah. trying to manage capitalistic takeoff, you know, right. and now it's hit where its own environment is hundred percent polluted. And that means the soil with chemicals, the water with pollutants, and the air with all these particles. Yeah. And so they really have to do something. So they, you know, they, it's, it's hit them at home much more strongly. Yeah. So I'm very, therefore, we're very hopeful. And in the middle of all of this, the man who, on the global level, who knows all the European leaders, he knows all the American leaders until the last um, misleader, and they know all of them, he still presents it's not too late. It's not hopeless. We can live without the extra plastic factory. We can live without the extra feedlot. We can live without the extra power just to keep the lights blazing in Las Vegas, you know, yeah. et cetera. We can have a moderate way of being on the planet. We can relate to the neighbors and the wars are no longer necessary and useful. So we can shift that investment everywhere into restoring the environment and getting things back in a nice, even keel and in preparing it for our millennial youth and for yes. their, their children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And stop hypocritically pretending we care about our children and grandchildren. And meanwhile, we're wrecking the whole ecosystem. You know? Yeah. And so he's the one who speaks that up. Pope Francis has joined that yes. wonderfully. We're so hopeful when they eventually, you know, he didn't meet the Dalai Lama yet because he's trying to negotiate something with the Chinese government for the Chinese Catholics, which is fine and understandable. The Dalai Lama doesn't mind that. He's perfectly happy. But they really had, did meet with the Pope's Laudato Si and the Dalai Lama's own environmental pronouncement over many decades. Mm. Uh, you know, for, and those are two of the really big religions. And uh, we somehow have to get the Islam Muslims to go on it. And then we'll have a big, big force on, yeah. for the environment. And, and there are enlightened Muslim leaders in Egypt, and uh, in Iran, you know, the two different main divisions, you know, they are they happen not to be the ones politically in power at the moment, unfortunately. Mm. But they are there they, philosophically, theologically, they're there. Yeah. And they they don't want to destroy what Allah created, they, what they consider Allah created. They don't, sure. they don't be guilty of destroying that either. Right. So, so that's a, that's the importance of the Dalai Lama for the world as a whole. Yeah. He's like the living. You know, there are many, but, you know, less known. Basically, most of the women on the planet, in my opinion, are nonviolent heroes, mostly. Mm. Then there are many male leaders, you know, you know, Tolstoy, the recent tradition of that, you know, first Buddha, Jesus, and so many Christian and Buddhist saints over thousands of years. And then more recent times, we had Thoreau, 
Tolstoy, mm. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and the living one now who's still functioning with no country and no seeming political success, but Nobel Peace Prize, and then meeting all the political leaders, but although they didn't invite him yet to a group of 20 <laughs> or his advice, which they should, right. and not just him. They could bring, he could bring Archbishop Tutu. He could bring Pope Francis with him. He could bring the the head uh, of Al Azhar University in Cairo. He could bring the head of the Qom, you know, the, the Shiite theological thing, and they could talk peace to the group of twenty. and And that should be the case. Yeah. You know, they 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 can't get along without spirituality on this planet. You know, doesn't yeah. mean to sign up on anybody's religion. Right. They have to listen to people who have this bigger perspective, you know. Agreed. And and, and so and the Dalai Lama is sort of the one who's out there, you know, on a limb. And very so that's much so. Really important, you know. Yeah. And so going back to like basics 101, because we've been talking a lot about Buddhism and probably yeah, sure. taking for granted the fact that most yeah. listeners know what it is, but I'm sure there are a few and I don't want them to feel ostracized from the conversation. Right. So okay. even in a nutshell, you know, could you explain Buddhism for, and as well as Tibetan Buddhism? You know, yes. there's a difference there if you don't mind. That, that need to be clarified. Yeah. And that is Buddha's in, in, innovation was not the meeting with God and being commissioned to start a religion and therefore say, giving you a bunch of things you have to believe in. That's the first thing. What he actually discovered, which is a really great thing, is that we have the right, the ability, and the reality of finding happiness, which we all want. Yeah. In other words, in that sense was very, very, and, but we do that not through believing that that's the case, although believing it gives us a trust of the universe that is helpful, but we do it by understanding the nature of reality. Mm. That's very key. In other words, he understood, or at least that's the claim that has been verified and validated by thousands of people. That doesn't mean it might, you know, they might all be deluded. So we have to keep trying to find out ourselves. Sure. But that is the claim. He fully understands the nature of reality. He discovered nirvana. And nirvana is not simply annihilation, as people wrongly think. Nirvana is being in the relative world with all the other fellow beings in a completely positive, loving way. Like, you know, like everyone experiences nirvana for a short time when they fall in love and that love is requited. Mm -hmm. So the two of them are in love and somehow the mutual reinforcement that the two have, like, you're the one, no, dear, you're the one, they temporarily have nirvana. Right. And then all the other people around them are jealous because they feel they're left out. And then they ate them, and then it's like Romeo and Juliet, you know, the, Cat the Capulets and the Montagues or whatever they were. So, but everyone, you know, the, when you get out of your egotism temporarily through love, you're happy. Yeah. So, but the Buddha's discovery was that's the real way you should be all the time, and then you will really be happy. And he, and he said, and just believing that by itself is not enough to experience it. There's a method to experience it. And the method is, first of all, learning and also unlearning, because most authority systems in most societies, we, that includes East as well as West, yeah. most authority systems tell you you're not supposed to be happy, you're supposed to be miserable, but we can, we can, at least in this life, 
but we can help you out for the future life or even a little bit in this life if you pay your dues and work for us. That's really been the major message of most institutions right. and uh, most societies on the planet. And uh, no ex- Buddha's own society was no exception. He was a complete rebel in that society in that he refused to take his job as a king and fight wars, you know. And he dropped out instead. And then he created an order, a mendicant order, a monastic order, where you could drop out. And then many millions of people followed over many centuries. But he, to do it, he had to drop out of that system. And he did do that because he discovered, wow, we really can be happy here and now if we understand ourselves and the world. And wow, as human beings, we actually really do have the ability to understand the world. We have this amazing biological instrument, which is the human body and mind and brain and nervous system, which if we learn to operate rather than just be driven around by impulses, if we learn how to operate our system, we are miracle producing, realization producing, understanding producing beings. And the most biggest understanding we need to understand is the nature of our interrelatedness with every other and we will eventually discover our interwovenness and interentanglement with them, and then we will love them, meaning wish them to be happy. And then as they become more happy, they will wish us to be happy. And there you have the virtuous circle, which we call Shambhala, you know, in, in Mahayana yeah. Buddhism, uh, Indian and Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism, we call that Shambhala. That's what Shambhala means. And, and unlike exoteric, some certain types of exoteric, even Buddhism, and definitely Hinduism, for example, and other traditions, they talk about a kind of general deterioration, you know, each generation is worse than the last one. You know, conservatives in general always have a worldview that the world is going to the dogs. So they want to keep as much of the old, you know, under their control right. as possible. And they want to force the new to conform to the old, you know, that's that's essential to conservatism. And that's a case in India, mm-hmm. what they call Kali Yuga, the dark age and so on. And it's the case in the West. But Buddha and then later Jesus, and Jesus with the Armageddon, New Jerusalem thing, and then Buddha, and then the Muslims have a Mahdi, and it's not quite as clear as a New Jerusalem, but mm-hmm. they have a similar thing. And the Hindus also have a thing like that. Uh, eventually, they did, where they have, uh, but they don't call it Shambhala, that's all. They call it Kalki. They have a 10th Avatar of Vishnu. Mm. Uh, as since the ninth was the Buddha, the 10th is the one who makes it more real, at least for India. But uh, they're more India-centered, so they don't know quite what's going to happen in the Middle East or the Far East, you know, in, in Hinduism. But in the Buddhist thing, Shambhala becomes global. Mm. Everybody participates in freedom and happiness of Shambhala. Or it doesn't mean everybody instantly becomes happy, but instantly develops these kind of education systems societies do and the orientation to try to encourage people to find happiness. Really, you know, and that's why, for example, Tibetans really, Buddhists really like America. We have the pursuit of happiness in our constitution or in our declaration of independence. And that no, no, no other country has that. Suit of glory for your country and glory for your king, and your king and your high priest can be happy, but you have to slave away. Actually, right, right, right. That's why. That's. I mean, in America, has behaved like that. American leaders have been oligarchs here and there, and they have not completed a transition to a true pursuit of happiness country. But they've worked. They've made a lot of progress, and hopefully, this progress cannot all be undone in six months, <laughs> even, even though there's a big effort. To do so, 
but it will fail that effort. So we don't need to hurry, but we do need to resist. Yes, we need to, we need to resist, but not to resist happily. Yeah, and resist peacefully and resist lovingly, but vigorously. Right, that's what vote. You know, all those young people, they ought to vote. They got to get out and vote for even the local fire chief, the local sheriff. The school board, everything is important that we, you know, the reason we have gotten bad in lately in the last 20 years or 20, 25 years is that, you know, the, the corporate media have convinced through various, you know, propaganda strategies, people that it's useless to vote and young people shouldn't bother and they're all corrupt and no good and it's all useless and, and just drop out, you know, and therefore they get get away with it with less than 50% voting, mm. then their 20, 25% of really confused people will vote for them. Yeah, which we've seen, and I've heard a lot of people uh, my age and younger share that sentiment, and, uh, and and to one extent I understand their frustration, but, it, you know, I went out and I did vote, and um, it's a very important time in this world. It's always an important time in this world, but, you know, yeah, right now you just look around and... We wake up and see how important when things we let them kind of slide and then they right. go really wrong, you know. Right. And, uh, and and you know the bad guys are not really evil. Like you know they're not Satan or anything. Right. They're just greedy and they're they themselves are unhappy. Yeah. If you look at these people who are causing this, just look at their faces and how they walk and talk, and they look at their health. If you understand about that. Sure. Really, they're walking. McBurger <laughs> for a McBurger collapse, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they're very unhappy. They don't feel inwardly a kind of inner bliss in the heart, you know. And this and that right. people learn to meditate, if they learn to meditate for the right reason and in the right way with the right orientation, they they will begin to feel internally really much better. Right. And then, then they get convinced that they can go much further, and then they become really good practitioners. And it doesn't mean they need to be Buddhist at all. Of course. Whatever tradition they want to do, or a secular humanist tradition even, if they want to do that. And um, But they are taking their mind and their consciousness and observing how their inner mental mechanisms and impulses work and learning to gain more self-control. Mm. And... Um, and more and and gain and also they gain the encouragement. See, the great encouragement that made the Buddhist movement planet-wide work, in spite of all kinds of obstacles and violence and suppression by all kinds of different things at different periods. But what made it very popular and work was that that uh, people can use the methods, whatever their tradition. They never tried to attack Confucianism. They never attacked Taoism. They didn't attack Hinduism. Mm -hmm. In fact, they enriched those traditions because they said, well, here, learn how to manage your mind within your religious or your cultural setting. Like right. the Dalai Lama always says, he never tries to convert people to Buddhism. Sure. He, he, if someone is a Buddhist, then he'll treat them as a Buddhist, but he he, uh, he doesn't try to convert them, and he, he begs others and members of other traditions not to go on these world crusades, right. but rather just do crusades within their own traditions of getting people to live up to the high, uh, you know, the high values of their traditions, you know, the ones yeah. that have said, you know, love and compassion and right. dialogue and understanding and honesty and et cetera, nonviolence. This is key. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that's the thing. Mm -hmm. So there's so much shown in the Dalai Lama's life. You know, so we really wanted people to know that through this book. And the reason for that, come back into your other question, the reason for the illustrated uh, life story is mm. to appeal to younger people yeah. also 
who are used to now seeing their things on the net more quick, you know, attention shift and understanding more quickly. It isn't right. a negative thing. I'm not saying there are some things maybe you need to focus on, but understanding quick understanding is life is not that complicated. It yeah. doesn't take rocket science to realize that actually what you really want is to be happy yeah. and, and to then notice that someone else does seem happy when they're doing something that may be benefiting them and then try to do that. That right. that's yourself. That's really simple. You know, yeah, we did it like that, and we really. So, and then we were delighted to discover that older people who even had read by or, or parts of the biographies, the autobiographies, mm. just all words, you know, uh, they said, "Gee, you know, I didn't finish all. I skipped chapters, and you know, I got because I'm busy, you know." But this time, when I reread his biography illustrated, I could see the action. Yeah, get into it as action, and the drama of this one man against a militarized empire you know, expanding, you know, territory grabbing empire, then, you know, uh, I was able to get through it all. I saw it as a whole and it was really amazing. Mm. So very pleased about that. Which is wonderful. And it, it certainly will and has been, I'm sure, reaching younger generations. And another thing that makes yeah. me think of that the Dalai Lama is very passionate about, which much of our younger generation, of course, is passionate about as well, is science. Yeah, and I love that. Sure. I, one of my first, uh, not first, but years ago, I'd, I and I still have it somewhere. He had done an audio book, and I apologize. I'm probably not going to get the name right, but something about like the entire universe in a single atom, something to the effect of that. And the Dalai Lama oh, he just had the, he had the book. Like, he had the universe in a single atom. Okay, great. Yeah, so I have the I, I had the audio version, and I remember listening to it and just being floored you know, by that. Um, so I would love if you don't mind discussing a little bit about why is the Dalai Lama, you know, so interested in science when you see spiritual or not, whoa, not spiritual leaders, but leaders today, like pushing science away. Yeah, really, know, no, that's no, right. No. So sure. I'd love to hear more about yeah, that. Well, this, this goes along with what I said. You see, the, the Buddhism is based on a discovery yeah. By initially by Shakyamuni, only initially in this cycle of yes. history, of record history, there are many previous Buddhas, according to the Buddhists. There, sure. there, actually, there were three major previous ones in this particular planet, and there will be 995 more of them before the planet has gotten tired hmm. over hundreds of, you know, of millions probably of years, or yeah. hundreds of anyway, and. Um, and so the discovery is a is a understanding discovery. It's a it's a realizational cognitive discovery, and it is a discovery of the nature of reality itself. That reality itself is conducive to happiness, mm. and that reality in this planet of the human beings in this perfectly balanced for human beings planet, as if it was made for them, which is why the creationists all go crazy. But the Buddhists are not creationists; they are against the idea. They, they're not against the existence of gods, by the way. Mm. They know that there are certain gods and more powerful and less powerful and so on. And they, uh, But they're against that one of them is omnipotent and is the absolute creator of everything. Right. That That's exaggerating uh, and is in, in, it needs blind faith because it's irrational. Sure. And, um, and so they, they don't like blind faith. They like understanding, you see. So yeah. because of that, Buddhism initially is was science. Buddha said, oh, that's what reality is. That reality is not a thing in which I'm supposed to be a king and kill other people so we can have a little more territory and then still die and get old and get sick and harm others and then have bad future lives, actually, because our biology goes beyond this life. He discovered that, too. But 
that's not an absolute. There's no, in other words, the absolute thing that he understand was the, the nature of the freedom and the infinite abundance of energy for life of living beings in the universe. So that therefore there's no scarcity of that. And therefore everything can be satisfied if people know how to use it. Mm. Put it that way. It's like the Buddhist medicine, the medicine Buddha vision is even every blade of grass, every bush, every leaf, even poisons can be medicine if someone understands how they interact with whatever else is bothering any living being. Right. So, so the world is, and you know, uh, yes, the other day I was having a talk with a, with a Tibetan doctor and he brought up something, of course, which is very amazing, which is the sun is like millions of miles away, right? And it's huge compared yeah. to the earth or anything. And the moon is a dinky little thing and it's only 90,000 miles away, right? But they look exactly the same size to us. So there's somehow the balance and the moon is associated with water, you know, tides and powers, you know, gravitational field, magnetic fields and water and stuff. And the sun, of course, is associated with fire. So hot and cold are just balanced in this perfect way on two sides. So they, they were enjoying the planet. You know, they talk about the constants that make life possible, you know. Yeah. But that's a really amazing one if you think about it. How the how did that happen? That this one bunch of rocks there that maybe broke off the Earth is just exact distance to make it look the same size as something billions of millions of miles away hmm. that keeps us without which we would have no life. There'd be no solar energy, no leaves, no food. Right? right? We'd all die. You know, they don't have really life on Mars like that us because it's too close and etc. Yeah. And uh, and it's amazing, you know. So, so I'm saying Buddha saw that, understood fully that we have the capacity to find out that, you know, the strong force holding our molecules together is not just some sort of physical thing that, uh, that, has, no, that has no sort of um, can be this or that. In other words, has no final output. It is an energy of connectedness that is abundantly there for for the way we have connected things over our own evolutionary form. And therefore, we can draw from it everything that we need, live or die, this life or another life, and to love other be help other beings. And in a way, therefore, you can say that the deepest energy of the universe is love. If you define love as Buddhists do, meaning the wish for the beloved's happiness, you know, and the will to the beloved's happiness in the sense that the basic energy of the universe is wants to fulfill any need that that it encounters in the thing, and it's it's at a level. But now the strange thing about it is that you you can't any sort of statement about it or theory or mathematics becomes paradoxical because it cannot be conceptually captured. This thing mm -hmm. in our dualistic uh, languages. Right. It's like you get to the wave particle paradox that he, he loves the quantum, particularly Dalai Lama, by the way, because yeah. you get to the wave particle paradox that, after which you can't tell if something is a particle or a wave, even a material thing. Right. But obviously there's energy. And then you have this, the idea that the speed of light makes mass infinite. So the light is everywhere when it reaches that speed. But then the mind is more subtle than any material thing. And it is there with the light everywhere, something yeah. like that. But when we are conflicted with the primal ignorance, 
or the, mis the misunderstanding that we think our mind is locked inside our body. It's just in here and I have it. And it's sort of, I guess it's the materialists say it's my brain making me think I have a mind. I don't really have one, mm -hmm. but spiritualists say it's my soul, which never changes. And that's inaccurate because everything about me changes. But the more scientific psychological thing is there's a super subtle individual continuum that is us interwoven in a magnificent tapestry with infinite other beings. Mm. There's enough for us all in that interwovenness. It's a, it's a paradise if we are open to it all. Right. If, we are, if we shut off from it, we think, oh, gee, they might all be against me. I have to fight them. I have to hold my own against this vast universe, which doesn't just include other humans. And there's tigers and lions. Then there's germs and, and viruses. And, you know, it's a losing game. Yeah. And, and so the Buddha did say, and this is where he was misunderstood, he said, now that I've discovered that if you understand how to truly open your mind at its most subtle level, which means open your heart, then you get out of this way of life where it's you versus the universe because you think you're absolutely different from it. It is different from you, other beings and the world. Ultimately, I mean, mother is same for a while because you're connected to her body if you're a mammal. But then mother may be a pain and then heck, you might be an alcoholic and cause you harm. Yeah. So you're just this paranoid, lonely person. When you overcome that delusion and you realize you're all totally interconnected with everyone, then you feel an inner bliss that is inexhaustible and even death doesn't bother you even. And you just shift your form, you know, it's like mm -hmm. sleeping and waking up and, uh, and uh, you don't mind the sleeping part either. Right. And so, so this is the thing, you know. Uh, that he then mentioned suffering, meaning just to show, because, only because he saw the way out. So it's like a doctor, the four noble truths, as they call them, or the four noble facts. Mm -hmm. First is no, acknowledging the symptom. Second is looking for the diagnosing the cause of the symptom. Third is the prognosis that in reality you can be truly healed. And fourth is the therapy. And so it's, like, it's not like a bunch of religious dogmas. Right. It's like a diagnosis. You can have a great life. Just understand yourself. And I'm confident you have the ability to do so because I was a spoiled king brat. I, Buddha, he says, you know, yeah. I was a brat Siddhartha and beat everybody up and had all the girls and whatever. And uh, But somehow I got out of that. And now I'm much happier. And, yeah. and since I was able to overcome that delusion of being closed in on myself, you can also do that. Mm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And that is, and it doesn't mean everybody, anybody, has to be a Buddhist. Even right it means that people have to be their own. You know, trust in themselves and find out. We we undo the programming that we all are given that we are this incompetent, not knowing person who can't really manage, you know, so we have to make a lot of money, maybe, and then hire people to defend us. Or right. We have to have a lot of friends because we, but we can't really manage and we're not really going to know anything. And we can fantasize that there's some absolute being who's going to do it all for us after we die, maybe, hmm. or we can, or we can decide that it doesn't matter because we don't exist, which is what the materialists tell us. And we just die and we're just gone. So we're not there. There's no regret, in other words, mm. which is their false uh, dogma, you know. Right. And instead, realize we can manage in relativity by being really relational in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And we can understand that's realism. 
I like to say I have a slogan for those people who you mentioned we didn't want to leave out. Mm. Buddhism is realism mm. is my slogan, my one three word epitome of Buddhism. It's realism. I like that. And if you expand it, you say ignorance is not bliss. That's an ignorance statement. Ignorance is, leads to suffering because you don't know where you are, what you're, and you're interacting with what's around you in an inappropriate way, and it will bounce back on you. Yeah. Wisdom is bliss and brings bliss, meaning knowing your interconnectedness with everything, knowing mm. your freedom to interconnect in a positive way, and realizing how a magnificent being you as a human being already are mm. by having evolved through many lesser life forms and come to this one that is sort of made of sensitivity to others, which means made of ethics, actually, because ethics only comes from knowing how something you do might be harmful or unpleasant to another and therefore restraining not to do it. Mm. That's what it is. So if you have more sensitivity and you can identify with another, like an advanced mammal, like the human, then you won't be so harmful. Then, but, but how to, And then you expand that identification with your team, with your buddies in war, with your brotherhood or sisterhood in spirituality, you know, and with your planet, your specieshood, I guess, you know, sure. and finally all lifehood because animals are all also human beings too. I mean, they're just at the moment they've lost their human capacity to to have an iPhone. You know? <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they can't connect to Facebook directly. No, not directly, at least. Um, so we have about five minutes left. And what I wanted to do to end out, we've talked so much about the book. And uh, again, I can't say enough good things. I have like 20 more questions about it. But I did. I'd feel remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Tibet House. And okay. just well, so, if, if, yeah, I would love to give you a little bit of time just to share you know, any anything you care or feel moved to share, the inspiration behind it, what, what you do, where people can find you, anything about it that you'd like to share. Sure. I'd love to hear. Well, well, Tibet House, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, asked me and my ex-mother-in-law, my first wife's mother, <laughs> who remained a good friend of mine, um, and one Tibetan guy in 1979 to make a, a, an institution in America that would become a big foundation eventually, that would then make grants around the world and could help sustain and preserve the, the wonderful elements of Tibetan culture, mm. which, is a, which is the culture of a nation that was once uh, all-conquering within its orbit and the technology of the time, a huge imperial conquering culture mm. it was, but then it discovered Buddhism in some of the places it conquered. And then its leaders decided, oh, this is a better way of living than just going out and beating people up and looting them and having them hate us and being afraid right. of them and hiding up in our fortress of high altitude where they don't really want to come. So it's better than, and then fighting with each other if we don't have somebody else to fight because we're in the habit of fighting. So that's not a good way of being. And this Buddhist seemed to have some methods to become more gentle and more sensitive and have more fun and, and have a better life and a better society. So let's start imitating that. And then they did. And then somehow, because they were undisturbed in their remote place, they actually got to where they sort of more or less mainstreamed Buddhism. Uh, they mainstreamed it in the same. What do I mean by mainstreamed? It has to do with what we earlier said about monasticism. Mm. In other words, in most Buddhist countries, you have had monastic uh, movements, like in most Christian countries in the past, 
and then but those movements tend to go under because the the king and the authority sort of high priest they keep their military going and their big institution is the military mm. and they don't want too much wealth and too much funding to go to these guys who are anti-military but they but also militant you know monks and nuns they want also the manpower of those monks and nuns to be in their armies or be in their fields planting their food. So they, so it's a kind of a balance where Christian monasticism and Buddhist monasticism in most countries kind of, you know, goes in a balance. Sometimes it keeps the peace and it keeps the militarism down and, and gives the king some other inspiration to be nicer to the people. And then sometimes it gets crushed by the emperor who wants more money and power and and and, and manpower and so um so so when i say mainstream there were countries in india that we no longer know actually buddha's own country was that's called the shakya country was the first one where they become so into the thing of the of the capable individuals seeking full understanding of themselves and dropping out from the normal conquer other people way of behaving you know dominate other people way of behaving right. But then the country itself becomes vulnerable to less enlightened countries that are just grabbing stuff, you know. And so there's been this disappearance of the mainstream societies progressively. And the last of which is the disappearance of Tibet and Mongolia in the 20th century by people wanting to grab land and wealth and manpower and destroying mm -hmm. the anti-militaristic societies where they mainstream Buddhism. So, you know, what I mean by that, for example, if you mainstream the realism that I'm saying about Buddhism in America, without it being Buddhism, what you'd be doing was you would have free education for everybody up to the postgraduate level, 100% free. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon would be a meditation center. The military corps would be building and rebuilding polluted land and recycling and building the right dam and dike and or unbuilding a dam that was destroying the ecosystem of a particular valley, blah, blah, blah. Sure. You know, they'd be building solar panels. They'd be making a backbone electricity thing from the deserts for the solar panels to avoid burning fossil fuels. I mean, that's what that's what would you mainstreaming here would be. In other words, it would be mainstreaming realism. Yeah where people would be having trusted by the by the democratic, truly democratic government, which would do what the people want, unlike our present pretend democratic one, which yeah. is doing what we don't want. And then and that and realism would be mainstreamed and people would know science and they would know literature and they would know history and they wouldn't take any guff from nonsense from rich people. Mm -hmm. Although they would some people would still be wealthy and that would be fine also because they wouldn't go nuts over it where they have to have everything and then nobody else can have anything. Right. They wrongly think it's really great. Oh, I know a hundred billion or a million billion. Meanwhile, then the others will just come and destroy their fortress, whatever it is, sooner or later, if they do that, you know, yeah. it's really unstable for them to do You know, 20, 30 million is enough. It's you can't enough. end it all in, a, in, 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 in the decades, you know. Yeah. So, so, um, so that, that's what Tibet did mainstream. So that means, although it's not perfect and nobody else needs to imitate it too much, but it means that it's, it is possible to mainstream a nonviolent education and enlightenment oriented society where the people's will is heard and because they're very well informed and actually why would anybody do anything self-destructive to harm other people 
and they don't need a military, actually, or, or, or the, what the militancy is turned inward in education. Like mm. I get militant, like I'm really going to learn Russian or I'm going to really learn English or Chinese and I'm going to be like disciplined about it, you know, like a boot camp. I'm going to learn that language. That's good to be militant about things like that with this or meditationally. I'm going to meditate until my socks fall off, you know, like Buddha finally did. <laughs> and uh, with the heat energy that I generate by meditating so strongly on the right thing, which is freedom and openness and love and tolerance, you know, yeah. not hiding away from everybody. Yeah. That's the danger of meditation is if people have a definition of the goal as being if they misunderstand Buddhism and think that the world sucks and always will and there's no way to fix it. And therefore, what I'm doing to meditate is I'm getting into a place outside the world where I won't exist. So therefore, um, therefore, you know, the, all this messy world won't bother me. And I'm sorry, people, I can't help you that much, but because I'm leaving, at least I won't hurt you. Right. That's that's leads on into greater and greater mental isolation and can it get one addicted to states of seeming extinction mm. and uh, think, oh, I'm in emptiness or something. And that's actually kind of not a positive place to be, actually. And, and there is no such extinction. Right. It's like second law of thermodynamics, you know. Yeah. All energy only changes form. It never is destroyed. Right. No something ever can be nothing. So then it's a question of how, what kind of something is each something going to be when it changes. And therefore, we want to be riding and surfing that wave to have go in a nice direction and land happily on the beach and to get a prize for surfing the best wave. <laughs> you don't want to get crashed down and pretend, by pretending that we're not there, you know. Right. So, so that's the thing. That's what I mean by mainstreaming. Yeah, so back to Tibet House. So he asked us to do that. Then we, we tried a little and we made basically no progress. Although that lady was, happened to be very, very wealthy, but she more into collecting contemporary art. So mm. although she was inspired for a moment, she, she basically couldn't sustain it. Because, you know, she was not a Tibet fanatic. And, you know, we were not in a position to explain it carefully enough at the time. Sure. But then later, dear old Richard Gere showed up one day. And he had he met his own, he had become known his own, and at one point his own said, listen, why don't you get in touch with Bob Thurman, and why don't you help them get this, get this culture preservation thing I've wanted to see in America now. This was in 86, so that was seven years later. And uh, finally he showed up and he said to me, Bob, I told this asked me to help Tibet House, I'm going to, and now you're going to be in gear. Joke <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Stoke> himself. <laughs> and he's been so helpful and sweet for four or five years. And he got us going. And then he, you know, he, he was, he told me, actually, he said, and I'm going to really get you going. But, you know, in the long run, I'm not going to necessarily stick with you because my th culture is really not my thing. I'm not a museum goer so much, he said mm. at the time. I think he is more now, but he said at the time, he said, I like to be activists in politics and help oppressed people. So yeah. I will sh probably shift to helping the Tibetans in lobbying, you know, in the government, you know, you know, with their thing. And he, he shifted like that yeah. from Tibet House after about five years of serious effort and really getting us launched. And then Philip Glass stuck with us all the way through and a bunch of other celebrities and people and artists, yeah. a lot of especially a lot of musicians, actually, rock musicians. They were really good because, you know, most people getting you to help them, people of means who can help you. Uh, you know, who fundraiser you as a fundraiser, you have to kind of seek them out. Yeah. Uh, but they all of them have something going on with China. They own a company, they have a hotel, mm. they, you know, and they're nervous to get too involved with Tibet because Chinese consider 
the presentation of Tibetan culture, even though it's not political, we're not saying they should settle the Tibetan thing this or that way as an institution. We just are showing the beauty of the culture. Our motto is not save Tibet or free Tibet, although we like those institutions personally that do that, that do have that motto. Our motto is love Tibet. Mm. We want people just to realize it's a marvelous, beautiful, amazing thing because it seems so remote on the other side of the planet. Yeah. But it's very critical to us in a way I like to say nowadays, it's like the 60 year long standing rock. Mm-hmm trying to stand in the way of polluting, exploiting, dis- polluting and destroying the high plateau, which is the water tower of Asia. It's the source of all the rivers of Asia, you know. Yeah. If, it, if its glaciers get dried up by accelerating the warming, which is, goes three times faster there due to the Chinese mismanagement than the global warming is going right. in, in the highland of Tibet, because it's nearer the sun, you know, three miles high, you know. Yeah. Those glaciers all melt, which are as big as the Arctic's, you know, they're third Arctic. Then all those monsoon climate countries from China around to Pakistan will not have water in the non-monsoon season. Can you imagine what a catastrophe that would be? I I don't even want to. (laughs) Having no decent water flow except when the rains come in the monsoon. And probably by then the rains will become all deranged. And who knows? I mean, it's it's apocalyptic, actually, in the bad sense. Apocalyptic yes. in the bad sense. Yeah. So, so anyway, so he asked us to do it. We got going. We start. We were asked in '79. We made a little progress, but we really got going and incorporated in '86, '87. We did a year of Tibet, which was in 35 countries, 7,000 events. We've done big peace conferences. We published. We've helped with the films, make and see help people make films. But we still didn't become. We helped get the Rubin Museum going, actually, which is has more wealth than us and originally wanted to become one with us. But then for various reasons, they are their own. Mm-hmm. But it's fine. We love them. They are they were showing the Tibetan culture there in, in a near two blocks away from us in New York City. And um, and we are but we still because of the thing of not having real endowment, you know, yeah. nobody's given us millions yet, you know, yeah. but we raised millions. From the grassroots, we're like Bernie Sanders people. There you go, <laughs> twenty-seven dollars, and we and uh, and we haven't fully mastered the internet way, and maybe we will, and finally get an endowment. We have actually made maybe a million dollars, as much as a million dollars of grants, in directly and indirectly to different like orphanages in Tibet, in India, but with the Tibetan refugee communities, to. Um, to um, cultural preservation, you know, where they teach painting and the traditional paintings and things. So we've actually managed to get some money going abroad mm. to various works, other groups. But major where it's like you have a grant making committee because you have enough money to make regular grants. We've not really reached that. Yeah. And because we've not yet reached endowment, we have uh, a, no mortgage on a nice museum mini museum conference center teaching center office space in new york on 15th street 22 west 15th where everyone is invited and then we were given a wonderful 300 acre 18 building property in the catskills 2.25 mile hours away up uh, the river in rip van winkle country in the middle of a national forest where we're introducing Tibetan medicine, which is very similar to Chinese acupuncture and, and Indian Ayurveda and Persian ancient Greek medicine, actually, as well mm. as Tibetan medicine. And it's a marvelous system where we do, which is a great version of massage therapy and other kinds of external things that are legal. And, you know, we don't get arrested for medical, whatever. And, <laughs> it's uh, important. 
and we you know we want to show that wisdom how tibetan cultural wisdom relates relates you to nature about your health and your body and things like that and we're slowly developing that because we were given that at least that was like giving millions that was our one great million gift yeah. but it was wasn't cash you know there was a little cash came with it yeah. but it wasn't yet the millions we would need to be able to make grants but it was enable enables us to survive as a nonprofit and keep presenting to the world that the existence of Tibet and publish books like this book. Yeah. So people know if they buy this book, either as a as an ebook on their phone or their iPad or their monitor, computer monitor, or as a paperback or as a hardback, either way, they can um, uh, that money, the, uh, the publisher's share of that goes to, we have a distributor, but the publisher's main share goes to the nonprofit. Wonderful. So that would help enormously if people like propagate the book. Can't, uh, I can't promote it enough. I can't say enough good things. Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. It is an absolutely yeah, let me explain the cover gorgeous to yes I please do explain the cover this is a painting by actually someone who's a kind of think an icon to the younger generation alex gray yeah a friend of mine yeah wonderful spiritual painter yeah. and it's showing the dalai lama and then his transparent through his transparent body mm. his own original the palace of the dalai lamas which wasn't just his personal residence he just has a tiny apartment mm. it had the government bureaucracy it had a, two monasteries it had it had all kinds of like storehouses for grains and things for people it was kind of the center of the tibetan society but it wasn't just all his it, 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 he just had a little he had no property so he has, lives in a little room where he reincarnates mm. and this one got had to leave because chinese were shelling it and uh he doesn't plan to go back and live there even. It's a museum nowadays, and he'll mm. leave it like that, I'm sure. But for, but it will be used again for holy, wonderful, magical uh, mandala rituals and wonderful teachings and things in the mm. future when Tibet is culturally free again, which he wants. But And he's willing to remain within China so China can help repair the ecological damage and be cultural free. Then behind him is the thousand-arm Buddha, or Bodhisattva and Buddha Bodhisattva of Avalokiteshvara, which means the Lord, the God who looks with love at everyone. Avalokiteshvara, he looks down from the heaven with a loving care for every being. And his thousand arms symbolize his reaching into the lives of beings through multiple incarnations and and helping them. And his the eyes in the palm of each hand symbolize that he helps them in appropriate ways that are actually helpful and mm -hmm. not just what he thinks, but what he he's his his clairvoyance and his empathy enables him or her, sometimes she can be in female form, to know what beings need. And he is, Alex painted the Dalai Lama like that with this Avalokiteshvara kind of emerging from within him because he's considered the incarnation, one of the main incarnations of Avalokiteshvara. The Karmapa is also one. There are many others. Right. It's not like he's the only one. And so he's, but he is a really useful one and a very effective one. Yeah. So I just wanted to explain that to people. Yeah. That uh, he's the it's all right, and have a look at this far as the it's all right, Buddha, you know. Yeah, when he came home, the jewel and lotus, everything is fine, you know. Type of, I type love of it. Thing. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. Uh, not just for the book, but I mean, the innumerable work you're doing in the world from Tibet House to teaching at Columbia to everything. I know we focused on the Dalai Lama this conversation, but. You, sir, are a, uh, a prize to this world as well. And per just a, a personal note, thank you for all that thank you, you do. 
I'm yeah. very, very, uh, very, very kind of you. And of course, my my, I'm going to show my tattoo too. <laughs> you can see. You have to raise and it up a little bit. There it is. That's my that's my wife's name on there, Nena, which Nena. means little girl in Spanish. I love it. Although she's Swedish. Yep. But and born in Mexico. Absolutely and, beautiful. Uh, and so I'm with your generation, you know. Yeah. Really trying to. It's a. I think it's a wonderful sign. There's some taboos about it that some people have, but I think it's a wonderful sure. thing, the tattoo thing. In the sense that it's like trying to make your dedication to whatever it is kind of a strong part of your life. Yeah. And that's called yoga, actually. That's the real meaning of yoga. Sure. Yoga means that you yoke your life energy to what you consider the most optimal goal is and what you mm. what you can do for all beings, what you can do for the world, and what you can do for yourself, because you also are part of the world. Yeah. So but but you do more for yourself when you do for others. It's just of the power of life, you know. Yeah. It helps you a lot. Oh, so, yeah. No doubt about anyway, it. Thank you, Chris. And I love being on. Anytime you like to talk about anything else, I'm always happy. Well, I'm going to have and, you back uh, on. I would know, love. I'm, uh, I only shut up when my wife tells me like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you have the time. It's over. But please uh, think of me another time. I'd be happy to do that. I will. And um, any time on any topic, you know, that yes. has any secular relevance to your audience. Right. I'd be very happy to weigh in. I always thought, you know, I wanted to have like, um, you know, they have pundits on television. Yes. I always wanted, I asked Tom Brokaw once when he retired if he would do it, but he didn't, he, maybe he couldn't get it funded. I wanted one of those kind of people to have a thing through using satellite mm. where once a week, maybe on Sunday morning or something, they would convene a panel of noblists with especially those with the spirit and maybe not some non-noblists with a spiritual bent. Yeah. Like Tutu, Dalai Lama, uh, the Archpatriarch of Orthodoxy in Istanbul, the head of Al-Azhar in Cairo, you know, some head of the best uh, theologian in mm. Iran for the Shiite side, and the Hindu swamis, these great, some of the great enlightened Shankaracharyas or something, right. who would then, news of the week, you know, the moderator would then ask for kind of a spiritual perspective mm. about Francis, of course, would invite him or then he sometimes they can send representatives if they can't don't have the time, but they wouldn't have to go anywhere. So you'd have a satellite link to there wherever they can go to make a broadcast. You know, what a great idea. And then we have we would have that kind of perspective from people and uh, you could have and the scientific guys. Yep. Yeah. Going, you know, not the fanatics like Richard Dawkins. So sure. Not, but uh, nicer ones, but who are materialists, you know, Steven Pinker, for example, mm. someone like that, or some neuroscience, Richard Davidson, some neuroscientists, and they give a scientific and some environmental sciences, scientists, James Hansen and so forth, so that they would all discuss these things, have a dialogue amongst themselves. Yeah. And, the, and the people on the audience would have a chance of hearing what these very eminent people think about this trade deal or that event or this like disaster or those refugees doesn't mean they have to do what they say, right. but they get to see their view. And but in, regularly, instead of some ex-political operative who has a crony and gets on CNBC or something, and then promotes the corporate line more or less, you know that that's that's too too not good advice always. Well, some sure. of them, are, but it's not good advice often. Yeah. So I always wanted that. So well, I'm happy to be consulted. Yes, I think Even that's a wonderful, person. wonderful idea. And I and I absolutely will have you back on the show to talk more about you and Thanks. your work specifically. Anyone 
who's I interested. Also, can you put me on your list to receive notice of your other podcasts? I would like to know. What Absolutely. Sure. I'll talk to I Beth. And, I get an automatic notice. Yes. I'll set that up with Beth. Membership, whatever it has to be, you know. Absolutely. Please let me know. Yes, okay? for sure. It was a real honor and pleasure. Thank you for your time today. Thank Sincerely. You. My pleasure. My honor. Thank 100%. you, Bob. All the best. Talk okay. to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Be well. Bye. 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 This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.